Moving into our study, Genesis chapter 6, the title is God the Judge. As we head into this sobering, somber chapter, we find that God will actually state that he's sorry that he even made mankind. That mankind was so sinful and so far gone that he said, I'm going to have to bring judgment upon them. And this is not something the Lord found pleasure in. It's something that broke his heart to have to do. And so we see God as a judge. We, we're, we like the idea of God being a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God of love, a God of patience and long-suffering. And he is all of those things, but he also is a God who judges. And that becomes so clear here in chapter 6 and then next week into chapter 7 as we actually see the, the flood that comes. But I want to talk a little bit about this idea before we get into the details of it, that God is a God of judge, a God of judgment. Because many look at this, and I, people I know that used to follow Jesus, they used to serve the Lord, and I hear what they're saying now and what they're thinking. It's like oh, they can't accept this God anymore that is a God of, that would judge somebody, that there would be a flood, that there would be a, a, a conquest of the land in Israel, or that there would be a coming judgment, or that he would even judge his son. On the cross. And this idea that God cannot judge. A loving God would never enter into judgment. But that just, I mean, we don't even want to live in a world like that. Forget, take God out for a second. Do we want to live in a world where there is not consequences for action? I mean, there's a couple of towns that are trying to do that right now. And if that's your thing, you can go move there. I just don't think you're going to enjoy it. We want to have a place where there are rules. I mean, yes, righteous and good rules that have consequences. And when you don't follow them, there's, con there's a, you know, a, a penalty or a crime or jail time so that we can live in a peaceable place. And so this is something. We, I mean, these places in our country right now that are saying, you know, we're going to do away with the police and we're going to do away with law and we're just we're going to run it now. Hey, people aren't moving to those places. People are leaving those places because the idea of being in a place where you can just do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, is not a good place to be. And God is a God who brings righteous judgment. In the book of Revelation, which talks about the last day's judgment, this is an ancient judgment, right? The last day's judgment in the book of Revelation it talks about how when God brings judgment upon this world, that we who are in heaven with the Lord will say with our voices, true and righteous are your judgments, O God. We are not going to look down upon the judgment that's coming upon this world and say, oh, that's such a shame. Really wish you wouldn't do it. How could you do that? I'm not saying that it's easy. The topic of God bringing judgment is not easy. It should never really sit well with us because it should never be it's not the way we know it's supposed to be but when God judges it is always righteous and it doesn't mean that we always understand all the aspects and everything that's going on but here's what we know for sure as Christians is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son right he gave it that we might have eternal life, that we might believe in him. He gave his son to take judgment for us because he loves us. That is what you know about God. And we're convinced of this love. 
So when we come up against other things and the ways and the character and the nature of God that are hard to receive, they're a tough pill to swallow, don't forsake the things you don't understand for that which you embrace and that He is a God of love. When God brings judgment, you can be certain there is no other way. There is no other way. So we'll have our questions, but what I would warn against is let's make certain we're not sticking our finger in the face of God and saying, you're not righteous. You have no right to do this. If you were loving God, you would do it this way. And beginning to question Him because He truly is a righteous one. And, you know, the scriptures say, let God be true and every man a liar. Do you know what that means? If the whole world gathered together in an opinion that was different than God's opinion, He would still be right and we would still be wrong. So we can think and collectively come together about an opinion on God and His ways and His stated and revealed will and say, oh, this is it. This is wrong of Him. But the reality is, He's going to be true in the end. And He is true. So as we come into this chapter about judgment, I just wanted to give those opening remarks reminding us that He is righteous in all of His ways. We don't always understand His ways and His judgments. Sometimes they are tough to, to swallow. But... We know that he loves us enough that he sent his son to judge his son so he wouldn't have to judge us. So let's not, let's not start thinking that God is unfair and unjust. What's unfair and unjust is that we don't have to pay for our own sin. Somebody else took our place. We call it grace. So as we move into chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, we're going to begin by looking at the wickedness leading to judgment. These are some pretty interesting verses. People don't agree with them. And, and who these individuals are, the sons of God, we're going to read about. But we'll, we'll dig into it a little bit. It says, Now it came to pass, when man began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Verse 4, There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Wow. How tragic that God would feel this way. But it's the wickedness that brings this judgment. He's not capricious. He's not just flying off the handle here. It is because of the great wickedness that it was existing at that time. And I want you to note there in verse 3 that God said, My spirit will not always strive with man. That's, that's a, one of those verses, lines. You might want to underline because that's a principle about the way God works with mankind. He is gracious. He is patient up to a point. And God is not obligated to always be gracious and to always show mercy. And history tells us there comes a time when God says, that's enough. 
Chapter 6 of Genesis is one of those times when God says, no more. I'm not going to allow this wickedness to abound. I'm not going to allow this to continue. And so he steps in. But you know, this is true for every person if you're outside of Christ. If you live long enough, your days are going to come to an end. you got about 120 if you're lucky, it looks like. And at the end of those 120, you're going to go and you're going to meet the Lord. And either you've made things right with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, or you haven't. But at that point, He will no longer strive with you. Man is being drawn unto the Lord. God is working in His life. He sends people. He sends circumstances. He has sent His Son. You have the Word of God. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, first of all, welcome. We are so glad that you're here and that you're participating in what's going on. But I want you to know something, and that is that God, that sense of call, that sense of I need to do something, that is not you just having a spiritual moment in your life. It's not a spiritual phase, okay? There is none that seek after God, no, not one. If you are drawn towards God, it's not because you've come up with it on your own, you've decided to seek Him, it's because the Spirit of God is at work in your life. Be amazed by that. God loves you so much that He's coming after you. He's convicting you of sin. He's drawing you to Himself. He's putting it in your thoughts. You need to get right with the Lord. I guess what my wife is saying, or my daughter is saying, or my parents are saying is really true, and I just sense this need to get right. Get right. That is God who is coming after you. Well, I'll do it later. I'll do it later when I get older. You know, I'm, I'm in my teens. I'm in my 20s now. I don't want to do that now. When I'm, when I'm older like you, Troy, then I will do it. Are you sure you have then? Are you sure that the same awareness you have right now that has come from God that you need to get right with God is going to be present in your life? Because it's not something you produce in yourself. It's God's Spirit striving with you to, dream, to bring you to this place where you say, enough is enough and I want to follow you. Make things right with the Lord. One of the gravest mistakes a person can make is to resist God when he calls. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Harden not your heart, but get it right with God today. So God no longer is striving with this ancient world. Their wickedness is just too great. And there's some wickedness that is highlighted that is it's somewhat, it's a little shrouded for us. It's, we don't really know exactly what it was, but it has to do with these sons of God, all right? B'nai Elohim, these sons of God who are marrying um, sons of, uh, daughters of men, and they're having an offspring, and they're giants. They're these huge men of renown. And so, who are they? Well, there's two main views. There's more, but we'll just give you the two. One is that the sons of God are the descendants of Seth. Remember, Adam and Eve had Cain, Abel, and then Seth. Seth, in the days of Seth, men began to seek God again. And so we know them as the godly line of Seth, as opposed to Cain, who was an ungodly line. They were not worshiping God. And so the, the sons of God as a way to refer to the sons of Seth, the descendants of Seth. Um, and the other view is that they are fallen angels that are cohabiting with uh, the daughters of mankind, 
And together they're having an offspring of these giants. So the argument goes something like this. For the sons of Seth, it's like, wait a minute, Matthew 22:30 says the angels do not marry nor are given in marriage. And that is true. That, that is true. That's what the text says. But it doesn't say that they can't. As they were created and as they are designed, that is not something that the Lord wanted them to do. But it also is said of us that when we are in heaven, we will no longer be married nor given in marriage. doesn't mean that we couldn't. It means that we no longer will. So that verse in and of itself does not mean that God did not uh, create them in a way that they could reproduce. Now, they're spirit beings, and I don't have a great explanation for that. You know, but something evidently really serious went on. So this is the one view. The sons of Seth, angels can't marry, so it must be another explanation. And so people look for the sons of daughter, or the sons of of God are the, the descendants of Seth, and the daughters of men are the descendants of the ungodly line of Cain. But it, it's not in the text. It doesn't say that. We all, however you take this, are left to draw some conclusions because we just don't have all the information. It was clear when Moses wrote it. People knew exactly what he was talking about. But for us, thousands of years later, there's some resident knowledge that existed when he stated this that we don't have. We know it was wicked, and we know it was evil. Now, I personally believe that these are fallen angels. That's my take. Nobody's going to have salvation or lose salvation over it. Um, you can have some lively discussions around the dinner table about this. If your kids aren't interested in the Bible, they are now. <laughs> I'm just saying, you can have a really lively conversation with them, okay? So... You know, it was just, just some crazy idea. No, listen, this was the common interpretation up until the fourth century. This is the early church. This is just the, the belief that they had. Now, I'm not just pulling stuff out of the air here. There's some other verses that kind of uh, you can begin to uh, cross-reference and look at together. And one of those, New Testament, turn over there if you would. You're going to have them up on the screen probably, but I just it's good just to see it for yourself in your own Bible. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 20. And here we see a reference to the days of Noah and some spirits that Jesus went and preached to after he rose from the dead. So we read, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. He's the just, right? We're the unjust. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And it's by the Spirit that he went and preached to the spirits in prison. So there's your link. The spirits in prison. Who are they? Well, they were formerly disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. So Jesus, after the resurrection, goes to where these uh, spirits are being held the abuso would be my guess. And that there, Jesus preaches to them a message that says, you lost. You tried to corrupt the, the, the line. You tried to pervert so that there couldn't be a godly seed that could come from a woman that would eventually 
destroy the head of the serpent and bring salvation and restore things. And Jesus shows up and says, you failed. And he speaks a word of judgment. So this is not a, a message of salvation. You can't be saved after you have passed from this life. you got to get saved now. And so these spirits are the ones that were disobedient in the days of Noah. It doesn't, it's not definitive, but it begins to link a few things together. One other passage, and then we're going to move on. In Jude, verses 5 through 7, he says, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them, in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So again, you have those that didn't keep a proper estate. You don't marry and you're not given to marriage. They didn't keep it. They took the sons of daughters. And what happened? They had an offspring. But Jude likens these um, angels that didn't keep their first estate. He likened them to the same kind of sin that was being committed, um, type of sin that was being committed as Sodom and Gomorrah, and that was a sexual sin. So there's your passages why would that happen? Again, Genesis 3.15, with the promise that a seed of the woman would come that would be a redeemer, that would crush the head of Satan. The idea and the, and the hypothesis, if you will, is that if Satan could pollute the line with these fallen angels, then there never would be able to be one that would come that could redeem mankind, and mankind would forever be lost in a sinful state. So there's your lunchtime discussion. Have fun with it. But this wickedness is what causes the Lord to say, I'm going to have to destroy it. I'm sorry that I have even made man. Man has a creator that he has to answer to. A lot of people think they live however they want to. They do whatever they want. No consequences. And... Um, I just want to be happy. I want to do what feels right in my own eyes. Well, all of us are going to give an answer to God. Now, if you are in Christ Jesus, here's the good news. You will not give an account for your sin because you have an advocate who has already taken an account for your sin. How many of you grew up, and I, this was in my mind, and I'm not blaming it on my parents, but it was in my mind that as a little boy, I thought when I got, get to heaven, Everything that I've ever done wrong is going to be played on a movie screen and people are going to watch it. How many of you thought that? Okay, a lot of you. I'm going to liberate you right now. There's no movie time in heaven with your life. No dark, nasty, embarrassing episodes are going to be played while heaven watches. Eating popcorn and drinking. That's not going to happen. Because Jesus has already been put on the cross as a public display of shame and humiliation. He took that for us. And so we're not going to endure that. 
We are going to be held accountable for how we live our lives as stewards of the gospel and, and, and the gifts that we've been given as Christians. Are you faithful in the work that he's left behind for you to do? It's not just, well, I feel like it, and you know, I don't feel like it, and I'll, if I have time, I'll do it. No, you, you're going to give an account to God for your response to the grace of the gospel in your life and whether or not you served him. You're going to do that. You're going to give an account. Not me. For you. I'll give my own account for me. So this is, this is something that the Lord um, is put upon his son for all those who have faith. But if you don't have faith in Jesus, you are going to give an account for your sin. Because you're rejecting the one that's made atonement. And so our exhortation and our encouragement to you is stop making the mistakes that we used to make. Stop living your life apart from Jesus like we used to live it apart from Jesus and come to him and receive the kindness and the grace of the Lord because you will give an answer for how you live your life. And we see that so clearly there in verse 7. God brings judgment. There's a, a famous um, uh, atheist by the name of Aldous Huxley and he says, I've chosen to adopt my philosophy of meaninglessness. There is no creator. So that I might live my life however I want to, politically, sexually, and otherwise. At least he's an honest atheist, right? But that's what people do. I, I don't want to think that I have to give an account. I will say there is no God. Therefore, I can go do whatever I want. And I can quiet my conscience that says, this is wrong. Well, don't quiet it. That is God drawing you to himself. God warned us that he is going to judge this world again. I'm not going to read the passage again. I read it almost every Sunday. 2 Peter 3, 3-9. In our study through Genesis, I've referred to this so many times. But there is this passage where the Lord says that he is being patient and he is waiting and not pouring out his judgment because he's not willing that any should perish and that people forget and they, well, they mock and say that, you know, God's going to come and judge. Where is he? It's always been the same. Man has always lived the way he's lived, and there's never been any consequences. Oh, yeah? What about the flood? There was consequences. The flood stands. The judgment that God is going to bring here in Genesis 6 is a flood judgment. And this stands as a statement that man is accountable. Have you ever wondered why people fight so hard to deny that there was and is uh, there was a rolled flood. We're going to talk about it more last week, but it's like, I mean, there's so much evidence for a flood that covered the whole world. I mean, how do you get, you know, uh, sea life fossils on the top of the Himalayans? I don't know if you've ever been in the Himalayans. It's not by an ocean. And it's pretty high. So at some point in time, that was underwater. There's, there's evidence for this. Why do people fight so hard for uniformitarianism, or that things have always continued as they've always been. There's never been a change. Because if you say that there was a change, like a flood, like creation, judgment, then you're acknowledging that there is a creator, and you have to deal with him. But God is patient. He was patient in the days of Noah, and he's being patient right now, because he does not want to pour out his wrath upon mankind. 
He already poured out his wrath on his son. And he wants as many as possibly will to come and receive the forgiveness there. Let's keep on reading in Genesis 6, verses 8 through 12. We find a great line that teaches us and shows us that Noah finds grace in the midst of all this darkness. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth, was, uh, the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Man, this is a dark place, and this is where Noah's living. And this is, again, why God's going to pour judgment out. But Noah finds grace. You know, what is the description we've read so far about this ancient world that's about to be judged? They were violent. They were corrupt. All of their thoughts were always continually evil. And there was sexual immorality was rampant. I don't know. Kind of sounds like today. And these are the things that, that God says and, and, and judge the world for, and it's going to happen again. And we, like Noah, are to be preachers of righteousness. This is the day. It's like, well, you know, it's so dark, it's so evil, we just need to, you know, just you know, go hide. No, it's time for us to shine as lights. And the Lord looked upon this earth that he's about to judge and says, wait a minute, what's that? What is that glimmer of light over there? Oh, there's a righteous man who's raised his family to walk in righteousness. I don't have to judge the whole earth. I can judge the whole earth, but not him. Now, that's, you know, this is a lot of extra work to go through, isn't it? I mean, the whole millions, presumably maybe even hundreds of millions, they lived so long, of, of people were all corrupt and evil and yet God says, but if there's this one righteous, I will spare him. And so he spares Noah, and he finds grace. Reminds me of what Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. I'm going to read this whole section. It's a great passage of Scripture. It says, You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. So those first three verses tells us about where our life used to be before coming to Jesus. It's not that we think that we're holier than thou. It's just things we're forgiven and we've been changed. We were living one way, storing up wrath, so much so that you could say we were children of wrath. We were children awaiting judgment. But here it is. Just like we read there in Genesis. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come you might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I think that's one of the reasons why Satan fights so hard to impugn the character and nature of God as not being loving and kind. 
because the whole salvation story is meant to be a place by which the future worlds can look and say, look at the grace that you received, that God, you were one that received the grace of God. And so enemy fights so hard to question the grace and the love and the kindness of God. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He found Noah, and he says, I can put my grace right there. This world deserves judgment, but here's a family that I can save and I can spare. And I've got a work for you to do, Noah. I want you to build a huge ship. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But you're going you're gonna to be the means by which I work. And this is the same as for us. We are saved by the Lord, but now we are his workmanship to be walking out good works for our Savior in his name. Have you found grace? Judgment is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace is getting something positive that you don't deserve. No, mercy, God delights in mercy. This is what Scripture says. He delights in mercy. Do you delight in receiving mercy? Oh, yeah. Mercy is great. Do you delight in showing mercy? That depends on my day, <laughs> right? That depends on how closely I'm walking with Jesus. If I need to show mercy to somebody, that's because they have failed in some way or offended me in some way. Now I must extend mercy. I'm not going to bring a judgment upon them on whatever level that might be. But if somebody has done something really mean and harmful, it hurts, it's, it's you know, taken away some of my joy or my peace or my family's, you know, you don't usually feel like, well, let me, just, let me just say it's no big deal. That's not usually how we feel. It's like, I'm going to make them pay. They're going to feel it. They're going to, they will learn to never cross this family again. And that's kind of what's easy to fall into. But the Lord says, be merciful because I've shown you mercy. And if I've forgiven you of your wickedness, you can forgive that person of their indiscretion. Because in comparison, that's what it's like. We don't always delight in showing mercy. But God always does. Every single time you come to God and you're like, God, forgive me. I knew I shouldn't have acted that way. I knew I shouldn't have said that. I knew I should have done this and I didn't. And Oh, Lord, forgive me. And his response is, oh, I delight to show you mercy. And here's the point I'm making with this. You may be counting yourself out and saying that God is done with you, but God's not counting you out. He wants to show mercy towards you. Now, if you hear that and think, well, good. I got a whole lot more sinning I want to do. And if he likes to show mercy like that, then I can go, no. The Bible says, God forbid that we would live like that. And really, if you can hear of the mercy and the grace of God and you feel like you want to go sin, it is clear evidence that you are not saved. Because when you sin as one that is saved and you are reminded of the mercy and grace of God, you are not propelled towards sin. You're, you're propelled towards the ground to fall on your face and say, Oh, Lord, 
Thank you so much. But the Lord is not done with you. If you're willing to come to him, as we just read, he's willing to give you the faith that you need to receive the grace of God that is seen in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, paying for your penalty. But if you don't allow him to pay for that penalty of your sin, you will pay for it. And grace is what we need. Well, Noah finds grace, and as we're going to read, we're going to see that it's his family that's going to be spared. Let's read verses 13 through 22 and begin to wrap up our study here. Here we see that there's an ark of salvation. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above. That's pretty important. Don't put the window at the lower level, right? Put it up top, boys. And you're also going to have three decks, it says. You shall make it with the lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh which is, in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. You found grace. You shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark and keep them alive with you, and they shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, of creeping things of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all the food, of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you, for them, Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. What a picture it is of salvation here. This ark that was made, it's, it's, that's, it's impressive. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high, almost 100,000 square feet, square feet of cargo space. That is a lot of space. A lot of people have said, you know, how could you bring all the animals on? Well, Answers in Genesis has done a fantastic job of explaining all of this. But here's some information that was provided by Henry Morris that this ark could have handled, just for a comparison, 125,000 sheep could have been housed on this ark. It would be, if you ever come to a, you know, you see the train coming, you're like, the tracks are coming, I gotta get up here, but I see the train in the distance and you wanna get there before. Imagine if you hit the tracks and a car's coming by that has 150, a train's coming by that has 150 cars on it. That's, that's the capacity of this ark. So it was able to take all of the living creatures on at, that the Lord was desiring to preserve and keep. And this was going to be their home during the flood. And then for some time as the waters receded. But think about this. Noah and his family find grace and are saved by a wooden ark. We found grace and are saved by a wooden cross that Jesus hung on. I'm not saying the cross saved us. I'm saying that 
It's God. Just like the ark didn't save them, it was God that saved them through the ark. And we are saved through the cross. Enoch was delivered before the great judgment. Just like I believe the church is going to be delivered before the great judgment. And then as the family of Noah was spared and protected during this flood, that in the last days God also will spare and protect 12,000 from 12 tribes of Israel and no harm can come upon them. And so as we look at that first judgment, worldwide judgment, I believe there's so many parallels to what's going to happen in the second judgment. Jesus talked about the days of Noah and he likened them and taught a lesson of how we should be living knowing that there, he was coming back to judge this earth. And it's found in Matthew 24, verse 36. He says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. In other words, they were just living life, business as usual, doing the kinds of things that you do when you live life. Verse 39, they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. I know a lot of songs have been written about this and it's a reference to the rapture. I don't think so. The whole context here is judgment. God is coming to judge. The one that's being taken away is taken away to judgment. I'm, I know that bothers some of you deeply because you love that song. But cross-references to Luke, the, the parallel passage, and it's pretty clear. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the coming, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not know, expect. Are you watching your house? Are you watching your spiritual house? Are you paying attention to that which you have, this grace that you have found? The exhortation is this, is be ready. Live in a way that you are not overcome and that you are not overtaken. And there's only one way to get ready. And that's to come to Jesus Christ and put your faith and trust in him. And after you've put your faith and trust in him, that you remain in him. You abide in him. And maybe as believers you've come to him, but you've strayed away. Your eyes are on other things, other pursuits, other isms, other people. And you know, I mean, I I knew better. I shouldn't have done this. I, I know God... I know that he's willing to receive sinners to himself, but he doesn't want me. Well, the Bible actually addresses this in the book of Romans. And it says, if, you, if God saved you when you're enemies, how much more now that you are sons? God's willing to receive you back. And there's a place for you to serve and to be used of him. I know there's, you've probably maybe heard that if you sin, that God, you know, as a believer, there's no way you could ever come back to God and God will be mad at you and you're always going to be a second-class citizen. You don't find that in Scripture. You don't find that in Scripture. What we find is that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. He wants to show you grace. And if you're coming to him for the first time, 
That's because God is drawing you. And we would encourage you to make that decision. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for grace. Lord, here we are. If it wasn't for Noah finding grace, we wouldn't be here. Because that's our great granddaddy. But we all go back to him. And you decided to preserve this world. Fully knowing that one day you would have to save it with the, the sending of your son. Lord, you didn't just save us, but you saved us with love. And we thank you that you've saved us in this way. 